Polycystic ovary syndrome is a problem that we see often in family practice. We don't think about it a lot, and sometimes perhaps we don't even recognize it. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I am speaking today with a very special guest, Fiona McCullough. She's a naturopathic physician with a particular interest in dealing with women's health issues. And today, I wanted to talk about polycystic ovary syndrome and the different approaches to it, how it can be challenging for the woman who's suffering from it, and maybe how we can help recognize and deal with it. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, and it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Fiona, my first question, tell me a little bit about polycystic ovary syndrome. We, It's a physician audience, they know, but a little bit as the signs and symptoms and the way you see it and recognize it in your patients. It's the most common endocrine disorder in women of reproductive age. It's the most common cause of infertility in women as well. And so it's found in about 1 in 10 to 15 women, so it's extremely common. And some of the most common signs that you'll see are missed periods or long spans in between a woman's menstrual cycles, signs of androgen excess, so hirsutism, acne, or androgen-type hair loss from the frontal part of the head. And in some women, you'll see cysts on the ovaries on ultrasound, which are present as multiple small follicles on the peripheral part of the ovaries, but not all women do have that. And so typically a woman would have to have two of those three criteria to qualify for a diagnosis of PCOS. Do you think a lot of people miss it from your perspective, or is it maybe just, if not recognized, not dealt with quickly enough? Because it does seem like people do slip through the cracks. Oh, absolutely. It's really easy to miss. It's estimated that about 50% of women are unaware that they have it. And I think particularly this is common when you'll see women who are not the classic type of PCOS, who have a more average body mass index or who are lean. And sometimes we often think of the classic type of PCOS with higher weight or overweight or obese with the hirsutism and the irregular cycles. But there's a wide spectrum in, in different types of PCOS. So there's many, many lean women, average weight women who have this. There's many women who don't have any cysts on their ovaries who have it. And it does change throughout a woman's lifespan, which also can make it difficult to detect. So when you're dealing with it, you have someone who's been diagnosed. Tell me a little bit about your approach. First, I guess, dealing with someone saying, my gosh, what do I have? What is this? What does this mean? And how you take it from there? I'll first look at what age is, is this patient. Is she of reproductive age or is she older? Because one of the things that we often don't think about is that PCOS does persist even past menopause. And so what are we looking at? So in the women who are of reproductive age, you know, we're definitely looking at supporting ovulation or helping them to have menstrual cycles in addition to working with some of the metabolic concerns, the insulin resistance, and the pre-diabetic types of markers that you'll see. And in the older women, you tend to look more towards working on the metabolic health of the woman, preventing cardiovascular disease. In both cases, we found that diet, lifestyle, exercise, good nutrition makes a huge impact. So there's a lot of education on looking at the type of dietary changes that would be most beneficial for each woman. Also, when you're talking about dietary issues and stuff, you make specific suggestions. Do you get into it in detail? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So in my practice, I use what's called the Food Insulin Index. This is actually researched primarily by the same researchers at the University of Sydney who developed most of what we know about the glycemic index. The Food Insulin Index is actually one step further in that it tells us exactly how much insulin we release after eating a certain food. And on top of that, we also have the food insulin demand, which helps us to understand quantities of food and how much insulin we've released. 
And it's known that women with PCOS tend to over-secrete insulin. They tend to have high fasting insulin and they're insulin resistant. So we use a method that's based on a protein central diet with a lot of vegetables, whole foods, and controlled for the food insulin demand per meal. So it's really just a healthy, clean eating diet, but also with the metrics of the food insulin demand and choosing lower food insulin demand foods. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough with Fiona McCullough. We're talking about polycystic ovary syndrome, some of the aspects about it. And what about the psychological issues associated with it? I know you have to deal with that as well. Oh, absolutely. So it's really well known that anxiety, depression are much more common in women who have PCOS. And it's a stressful condition to have because it's associated with infertility, it's associated with hair growth on the face, hair loss, acne. So those are stressful in of themselves. But they found actually that outside of those, there's an increase in anxiety and depression. And not having those regular cycles, not having that normal hormonal balance, this definitely affects the female brain. Stress has a big impact. So there's definitely a lot of anxiety and depression. So women with PCOS do need a lot of extra support. When you're dealing with a female patient population, as you are, and, and, you, and you focus on that, what are some of the particular concerns you have? I mean, for those of us as family docs, primary care, what sort of things do you think maybe we need to pay more attention to in patients who maybe are young adults in their early 30s as well uh, who are female? When we see those earlier signs of metabolic syndrome or even testing things like fasting insulin or doing a fasting insulin glucose challenge instead of just the glucose tolerance test. This would be a two-hour test where we're measuring both insulin and glucose and looking for hyperinsulinemia. Those kinds of tests can actually pick out the women who are more at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And if you intervene at that earlier stage or get them involved with some nutritional counseling, there can be a world of difference that's made, not just for their reproductive health, but for their overall health as they go forward throughout their lives. It's an interesting point you make about that. I think all of us now are beginning to realize it's a, it's more or less a continuum. Um, people will say, well, I developed type 2 diabetes when I was 57. And you, you know for a fact that it was progressing over time, that some of those lifestyle changes they might have made could have made a real difference had they done it earlier. Absolutely, yeah. It's definitely progressive, and it, it definitely adds up over time. And one of the things that I like to do that's just so simple is a waist-to-height ratio test. It's so easy, but it goes further than the body mass index, and it's been found to be more accurate than the body mass index at predicting cardiovascular mortality. So looking at the abdominal circumference, and there's some you, know, you can just enter that into a calculator, but anything over 0.5 is significant risk factor. Do you think we're doing a better job at anticipating these problems? I mean, because I know in, in my office and in many offices, you have less time, you know, you're working more on the computer, you're forced to see more patients, you know, with that time crunch. And these are very important issues we should be dealing with and, and discussing in depth. Oh, absolutely. I know. And it's something that does take more time, you know, nutritional counseling and looking into all of these types of interventions is difficult to do within a really short span. So I'm really hopeful that with some of these blood tests, you know, that we can sort of pick these things out and be able to intervene or refer for nutritional counseling so that these women can get help earlier. Curious a little bit for those who don't know a little bit about the naturopathic approach to health care. Tell me a little bit about that as well. So naturopathic medicine includes a wide range of different modalities. The way that I practice is primarily evidence-based, and I use primarily clinical nutrition. I do also use some evidence-based supplements, 
that's generally how I practice. And we look at trying to prevent disease from the root where it starts when, you know, looking for those early signs of disease and helping people to take better care of themselves, learn how to eat properly and learn to make choices that improve and support their health throughout their entire lifespan. If you had to say three things, maybe, let's say three things dietary-wise or lifestyle-wise that would make a big difference in someone's overall health, anyone, what would you say three of them would be? Well, I think the first thing would be stop dieting and try to really follow more you know, of a healthy nutritional lifestyle. And that doesn't mean being perfect all the time, but really just doing simple things like just eating more vegetables every day at every meal, increasing your vegetable intake and focusing on lean, healthy proteins, healthy fats like nuts and seeds and avocados and olive oil and eating those types of meals most of the time. You know, that is probably the most important thing that you can do rather than trying to follow one strict diet after another and just going up and down in in your weight. So that's really important. And then the second thing would be exercise and just building lean muscle mass. So lean muscle mass improves insulin resistance and improves insulin sensitivity. So that's just something that we can do that is kind of preventative for a lot of these metabolic issues. You know, you mentioned lifestyle and those issues. I have a partner who went to Peru and he went for about a 10-day period on a, a mission type of a thing. And he said what he noticed seeing he would have 60 patients a day in these poorer areas wow. where he was. And But he said what he noticed was he hardly ever saw high blood pressure. He said he was expecting to see hypertension and this and that. He said very few people had it because the one thing they were doing they exercised and they really ate a good diet because they didn't have the excesses and a lot of the things that we have. And he found that in one town, the diabetes was starting to become a problem because about eight years before they had introduced sodas. And that was the only difference. Uh-huh. They had just started sodas. So you can see, I think, where these changes we have in our diet can make such a big difference. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's such an interesting story. And the same is happening in China, whereas they used to have very low rates of diabetes with their traditional diet, which involved a lot of lean proteins and lots and lots of vegetables. Sure, they did eat rice, but they did not really eat sugar. But now their diabetes rates are really soaring. And it's with the introduction of, you know, sugary foods, sodas, and the foods that we often overconsume here. One of the things that, of course, we're dealing too with is the obesity epidemic, especially in young, younger adults and children. And, and we're following those statistics. Do you have concerns that when we talk about type two diabetes and and diabetes being developed, it's going to be happening earlier and earlier based on what we now know about more more children being obese? Oh, absolutely. And it's kind of my passion as well to try to to help with that in some way, and especially teenage girls and. Around the age of puberty is when a lot of, you know, we all become more naturally insulin resistant in, as our bodies start to gain fat for reproduction. But if the wrong diet is, is happening at that time, then that gets out of control really, really fast. And that can be the seed of where, you know, obesity can start. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, your host on Primary Care Today. We have a couple more minutes with our guest, Fiona McCullough. We're talking about women's health, but also a lot about how we can make natural changes and ways to make ourselves healthier and our patients healthier, talking about the obesity issues with children. I know we do a lot of things wrong in the country. It's portion size. It's the selection of foods. It's those things. But you work with a lot of adolescents, and how do you get through them? Because that that I see as a challenge, trying to have these conversations and work with them when they're 13, 14, 15 years old. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually get a lot of girls at this age and they're coming with their moms. You know, their moms are concerned and they're reading up on PCOS online. And so, 
you know, what I often do is I have different presentations and slideshows that are a little bit funny, and I show them, you know, what certain sugars and foods do in our body and how insulin resistance starts. And then I just sort of show them like a very basic plate of, you know, how to eat. So like a palm-sized piece of protein, two-thirds of your plate is vegetables, some healthy oils or, you know, nuts or seeds or avocado, and then a, you know, smaller amount of healthy carbs like sweet potato. And I sort of do it in that way so it's very visual and appealing for them. And I find they're actually quite receptive to that. So what you do is you try to open those lines of communication. Do you see them on regular basis, like like several visits as you work through this? Yeah, I do. Yep, I see them for follow-ups. So we have four visits generally in our PCOS program that are kind of structured. And usually their mom will bring them. And it's great because their mom helps them, prepares the food for them. I find it, it just really helps those good habits when they're really young. And a lot of the times I find girls that age, they'll listen to me more than they'll listen to their mom. So it's kind of uh, the moms enjoy the visit too. And finally, tell me a little bit about your book. It's called Eight Steps to Reverse Your Polycystic Ovary Syndrome. Yeah, so my book is an eight-step System, and it just identifies the different factors that are involved in PCOS, so ranging from inflammation, insulin resistance, androgen excess, stress, female hormones, nutrition, and environment. And then it talks about PCOS throughout the lifespan. So it talks about PCOS as it's developing in adolescence with respect to fertility and through menopause and the prevention of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. So I've sort of designed it as a comprehensive guide for, for women with PCOS. Dr. Fiona McCullough, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on Primary Care today. It was really a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to be here. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash primarycare today. You can download the podcast and learn more on the series. Thank you for listening.